So there was a large dog um, who wandered into this butcher's store and he had a purse tied around his neck. And he, he comes in the store and he sits down in front of the meat cabinet. Butcher looks at him. Hey boy, what is it? What's going on? Do you want to buy some meat? Woof! The dog replies. What kind of meat do you want? Do you want some lamb, some liver, some steak? Woof! Oh, you want some steak, do you? How much steak would you like? Half a pound? A pound? Woof! The dog goes, a pound of steak it is then. Butcher wraps the meat up, reaches down into the purse, gets the money to pay for the steak, and the, the dog leaves the store and starts walking up the street. Well, Butcher thinks, I need to find out where this dog is going. So he follows this dog and he enters this apartment block and climbs three flights of stairs and he's scratching at the door. As the butcher makes up the top, suddenly there's this angry guy at the door shouting at the dog. Butcher says, will you stop it? Stop yelling at it. I've never seen such an intelligent animal. Intelligent, the man says. This is the third time this week he's forgotten his key. He wasn't very thankful. Are you a half glass empty or a half glass full kind of person? Is appreciation hard or easy? We're back on the journey with Jesus. In fact, even in our text, we're told he's on his way again to Jerusalem. Remember, to the cross. And... uh, we're told that he's traveling on the border between Galilee, which is part of the northern part of Israel, and Samaria. Now, Samaria represents some of the northern kingdom of the whole land of Israel. This was a part of the kingdom that after um, Solomon and his son came to power, there was a split in the kingdom. And uh, the northern tribes went their own way. And they, become, they, they became a, a part of Israel that was despised by what they thought they were selves as the purer Jews of Judah of the south, of where Jerusalem was, because ultimately they were overrun and overtaken. They never really had a godly king. And in the um, 8th century, I think, 722 BC, the Assyrians overtook them. And it led to an intermingling of different people groups with the Jews of the northern kingdom. And so they were seen as somewhat idolatrous because of the different worship that came in. They'd somehow compromised the pure faith of Yahweh. But the main sticking point was that they had their own place of worship, Mount Gerizim. And they thought that was the place, particularly when the people came into the land through Joshua that the Lord had blessed and called them to. And of course the southern kingdom saw Mount Moriah or Jerusalem as the place of worship. Hence we get a question um, in Jesus' ministry. I didn't really talk about that yet, did I? But my starting point was about faith leading to grateful obedience. Grateful obedience. Kind of a bit out of sync here. But there's, there's an episode in Jesus' ministry where he earlier is in Samaria and he stops at a well and he meets a woman of Samaria. And um, one of the things this woman says to her, to Jesus, was our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, in Samaria. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah. And this was the heart of the contention 
between these people groups who didn't see themselves as one because they'd been separated. And so they were in competition with one another. And that's the area that Jesus has come into. And, and part of my laboring that a little bit is for us to realize how significant that he would be in or connected with even people who call them Samaritans because the Jews would have nothing to do with them. So faith leading to grateful obedience. He meets ten lepers, but they're all at a distance because leprosy meant uncleanness in the culture of the day. In fact, if you're really keen, you can go and read about three chapters about leprosy in the book of Leviticus, chapters 13 through 15, if you're really having trouble sleeping, uh, because it was a serious, a serious thing. And it was a disease that seriously impacted the lives of people who suffered with it. They were isolated from their families, isolated from community. They were not welcome in the village. They suffered terribly physically as well as emotionally, often losing limbs and life. There's no wonder that they grouped together because nobody else would accept them. And so there's a group of ten of them, the unclean, and they cry out. This is the first loud voice, the loud voice. Jesus, Master, have pity on us. There's an act of faith here, you see. Because nobody else wanted to hear them. Nobody else wanted them anywhere near them. They were not welcome anywhere. And yet, there's a desire, even from a distance, to reach out to Jesus and to turn to him. People often feel unworthy of coming even into a church worship service. I sat with such a person just yesterday. He wandered in while we were preparing the space here. Uh, He's living homeless and we sat and chatted for quite a while. But one of the things he said was he feels unworthy of God and unworthy to come in among others. Who are today's lepers? Who are the unclean ones today who we would rather they stayed at a distance? It is a disease that's actually somewhat better managed, but still is a problem today. In fact, Beth Moore, some of you will be familiar with her writing, she's a teacher, uh, she had a great heart to visit a leper colony, and she wrote in a book that when she got to the colony, the stench was so bad she couldn't enter. What are our lepers today? People who align themselves with the LGBTQ community? Are they welcome? Addicts, are they welcome? People of other faiths? People of other Christian faiths? Are they welcome? The homeless? Those struggling with mental illness, the unborn, the ex-con. Or maybe just those that we fell out with last week. Would they find compassion of Jesus here? Because very often it's anyone who's just not like us we struggle with at times. But here, from a, even from a distance, these people could sense the compassion of the Lord. They remained at a distance. I put another verse up on the screen here because there's an an episode with a leper at the beginning of Mark's Gospel um, where Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. 
and says, I am willing to heal and be clean. And it's a beautiful, beautiful expression of God's compassion for us in our sin and our brokenness and our despair of his willingness to reach out and touch and embrace our lives. Leprosy very much is like sin in many ways. It's a picture of that reality that many of us struggle to feel unworthy. And part of the faith and obedience is learning to to walk in trust that we are truly forgiven by the blood of Jesus, that he does welcome us and embrace us. But there's an act of obedience to go and to walk in that reality and to reject anything else that would counter that often in our own heads. And so Jesus sends these ten on a journey. Has he ever sent you on a journey? It might be just across the road. But these lepers were sent to the priest. Now the priest was kind of the health secretary of the day. He was the one who both declared you unclean and declared you now healed and therefore welcomed back into the family, into the community, actually into the place of worship as the people of God. He was the gatekeeper. Imagine what these men and women perhaps thought walking to the person who told them they were unclean and unwelcome. Did that take faith? Because they weren't healed immediately. God will ask you to do things that will require faith when you don't see it, because that's what faith is being certain of what we do not see, but we trust in the one who has spoken. So they're on their mini-Jerusalem journey back to the priest. So what's your journey like? Do you have memory where faith and the call of God upon your life has invited you to get up out of the place you're in either metaphorically or literally, out of the mindset that you have and go to a different place. It's uncomfortable. I've had too many literal journeys, but I've had some of the metaphorical ones as well. But one of the literal ones was when I felt the Lord had called me to ordain ministry. And I can still remember, I was working for Chase Bank, at a fairly senior position, I still remember the walk from my desk out to my car. And I had to walk through this long atrium. And, uh, and I was leaving kind of a building, but I was leaving a way of life, leaving security, as many would see it, <laughs> leaving a paycheck and walking to a very uncertain future that was going to be so, so different. And I remember feeling some of the negative thoughts in that time. Am I crazy? Actually, the first time I went to see my my rector, the senior pastor, to say that I was thinking about going for ordination, that's what he said to me. Are you crazy? Why on earth would you want to do that? But he did say to me, he said, if you can do anything else, do it. But if there's nothing else you can do, then walk that path. And sometimes we have to hold on to that because we know and we've heard and God has called. Where has he invited you to pour yourself out? Because he will do that. He wants to do that. And it will be uncomfortable. And it will be an act of obedience. Now, gratitude secondarily led to worship. Because as they went, they were healed, we are told. 
wonder what that must have felt like. Can you imagine? Has that been your experience? That as you step out in faith and obedient to the Lord's call, He moves and opens. And He blows us away because He's already provided. Can you imagine what it must have been like perhaps for these people as they're walking along for limbs to grow? For skin to be formed. Instead of Smith Wigglesworth in his ministry, he would pray for people without eyeballs and they would appear in eyeball sockets. I don't know what that's like to see, but boy. How extraordinary. But one, before he even goes to the priest, wants to turn back and give thanks. And so he comes back to Jesus and it's interesting the first thing that Jesus says to him, where's the other nine? We're not all ten of you healed. Can you hear the disappointment? Can you hear the sadness in Jesus' voice? How do you feel when a gift you've given is not appreciated? Not recognized? Not acknowledged? Maybe some of you have known or seen the resistance some have, not just to your love, but to God's love, to the gospel. In many ways, this is a microcosm of Jesus' bigger journey towards Jerusalem and the cross when, by and large, Israel as a nation rejected his love and crucified him. How does God feel about that? And God invites us into his own pain, I think, to comfort him. Because it's hard. And what's really sad is people can have God move in power in their lives, can bring healing and deliverance and provision and even an awareness of God. And yet people not be saved. Because the purpose of the miracles, the purpose of the power of God in our lives is not to get us to a place where we can have a good life. But it's to reconcile us to God and bring us back into relationship with the Father through the Son. And only one wanted that. Probably didn't even know what he was coming looking for fully. But his heart was drawn to that. The rest probably thought, there's too much life to live. Got to get back. Back to work, back to family, back to whatever, but it's back to my life. And Jesus, above everything, wants connection. He wants you to know Him and to live in relationship with Him, to walk with Him, to celebrate and worship Him. And what's most shocking in the story, because remember back to this, this reality of, we're talking about Samaria here and a Samaritan, but the only one was this Samaritan? Would have shocked his hearers. Not only was this person a leper, he's a Samaritan leper. That's the double whammy in the rejection stakes. And they're missing entirely the heart of God. Don't miss this message. Don't miss the compassion of a father who loves you, who longs for you, who sent his son to live 
and die for you. Who wants to cleanse you and heal you. Who wants to meet you in your place of brokenness. Brokenness. Who wants to remove the ashes that we sang about and restore you to a place of beauty. Who wants to set you free. Who wants to put joy into your life. Who wants to remove your despair and give you hope. Who wants more than anything that you would find him and know him and rest in him. Now and for all eternity. It's the best offer that's out there. It's the greatest offer and gift that anyone could ever receive. And it's largely rejected still. And so we should grieve and mourn over that reality. So the Samaritan now, he's got his loud voice back again, but the voice has changed. Now it's a voice of praise. Now it's a voice of gratitude and thanksgiving. Now the the shame and stain of sin is removed and he comes close. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. He throws himself at Jesus' feet and he thanks him profusely. What a contrast with the nine who are too busy getting on with life. Not bad things of themselves but without oriented around the person of Jesus, the goodness of God, the reason we were fundamentally made and created and the place in which we find our greatest fulfillment and satisfaction was missed. They were wrapped up in themselves and what they want to do and get out of life. But nevertheless, in spite of that, God is still looking for worshippers. People like the one, the Samaritan leper, People like you and I. And back again to our story of Jesus and the woman of Samaria, because there is so much insight into that, into, into the nature of the gospel in that encounter that Jesus had. Because she throws out the question, you know, well, is it this mountain or that mountain? And Jesus says, it's not about mountains. It's not about particular locations. It's not about particular churches or buildings or denominations. It's about me. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. This word worship in this place is a Greek word, proskunio, and it means to prostrate oneself, to bow towards, to kiss. It's not the only word we have for worship, but it's a beautiful word for worship because the heart of it is this yielding, this in humility coming before and desiring intimacy and connection with, like kissing a hand, kissing a feet. Mind you, the woman who comes into Simon's house and all she wants to do is kiss Jesus' feet and her tears wash his, his feet and her hair dries them. It's a, it's a picture of profound Intimate worship. The worship that the Father is looking for. Those who worship in spirit. It's not worked up. It's the gift of God. It's through cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And it's a, it's a given of all of ourselves. And it's wrapped up in truth. Well, He's truth. I am the truth, Jesus said. 
the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together and our response to them. Haven't you seen the, the movie Coach Carter? I watched it again this weekend. And uh, it's a story of um, a high school, Richmond, in Northern California. And it's a really run-down, struggling academically, socially, in, in every category you can imagine. Few people um, kind of surviving and thriving and graduating from high school. Barely anyone going to college. And uh, it's about Coach Carter who comes and he's invited to come back to be the basketball coach. And uh, did you see his... It's a great story, but it's, hard, it's far more than teaching these kids how to play basketball. He wants to set them up for success in life. And, and his approach is resisted, ultimately, by the school and the parents, because they want their kids, because he leads them on a, an unbeaten run, but their grades are falling, so he shuts everything down. And, and he gets them to write a contract to, that says, as well as playing basketball, I'm going to attend classes, I'm going to sit at the front and I'm going to get a minimum of 2.3 grade point average. And they've not met it, and so he shut the whole thing down. And he gets on the news, it's a real story. And there's a powerful little scene where he said, if you do this, then I'll quit. And he quits, and he walks into the gym, and he finds his team in the gym at desks with tutors doing what he wanted because they want to do it now. Their hearts are changed. So there's a little interaction I want you to watch. Can I put that video on, Laurie, please? It's a powerful story. Am I on still? (coughs) The young guy who stands up and speaks is a guy called Cruz, and uh, he's the one who's kicked against the message the most, and whose life was at greatest risk because of involvement in drugs and gangs. And a good friend of his gets shot and killed. But constantly throughout the coach's engagement with him, he keeps asking, what's your greatest fear? What's your greatest fear? And finally we get an answer. And it's a beautiful answer. And I wonder if sometimes as believers, because it's not just our light. It is in part our light, but it's his light too in us. And sometimes the greatest fear is that we don't realize how powerful we are. Because of him. Powerful to be a cause for good and transformation out of a sense of gratitude for what we've been given. My final thought is that gratitude empowers our mission. Rise and go, Jesus says. Your faith has made you well. Rise and go. It's the second time he's been told to go. But this is a different commissioning. This is a different sending. It's not now for healing, for cleansing, for restoration. But it's to go and bear witness to the work that God has done in his life out of a sense of profound gratitude and connection with Jesus. This word, made you well, is a different word that was used earlier in the text. It's the Greek word sozo. It means to save, to heal, to rescue. And just like Cruz in the movie where actually the coach probably literally did save his life. Our lives too have been saved. But they've been saved for a purpose that is much bigger than us. And the nine missed out on this. And we can too if we don't seek to profoundly connect ourselves with Jesus 
and through him the Father, because he and the Father are one. And if we don't orient our lives around the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and the goodness of the Father and the power of the Spirit, which means walking in obedience to his will and his ways, and if we don't receive with thanksgiving the gift that has been given, and we'll get a token of that afresh when later today you'll be invited to come and receive a gift as an example of God's goodness towards you. But I think very much the measure to which we're in touch with how much we've been given affects how much we pour ourselves out in the purposes of God upon the earth. And I often find that people who struggle with that, who live out of the fear of the powerlessness, sadly are more half-empty, more in touch with what's been lost and how bad, rather than in touch with what has been received and what I should be incredibly thankful for, that I've been made one with and connected to the Lord of the universe and He's poured His Spirit into me and His power and His very glory and the love of the Father, that I am a new creation, no more in condemnation, no more shame, but forever changed with a new name and a new identity. Are you in touch with what God has done for you already? Though you may not see it all right now, and I know that's a reality for many of us, we don't see the fulfillment. In fact, we're we're more experiencing what seems to be the, the wearing out and the darker side of the reality of life upon this earth. But God is working something in us for His glory. That is the greater reality. That is what we give thanks for. We are forgiven. The stain of sin has been removed. The Spirit has been poured out. We have purpose and freedom and a life to live that was not ours before. Gratitude is the greatest motivational power there is. It's the one sustaining force. We used to spend our time trying to teach and coach and equip managers to elicit gratitude in their employees. By giving to them. Not threatening them. Not manipulating and controlling them. Which is the typical way we try to get people to do stuff. And it's a faith thing. Because we are wired to be given to. We are wired to live in connected, trusting relationships. But if we live with only an eye to the fact that people are always going to mess, they're always going to let you down, they're always going to do badly by you, you can't trust anyone. We are not walking in the light. And if we can't do it in the community of believers, there's no hope for what we're truly called, which is to do it amongst people who are yet to believe. Because that is our mission. And it's not just the people who work for us. It's the people we live with, with our spouses if we're married, with our children, with our parents. For children to do the same with their parents. I know it's a shocker. But we can live with an extreme understanding of gratitude for what even our parents have done for us. Perhaps especially so. They sacrificed the most. Carol got a text from our daughter who's over in England right now and she's right now spending about a week with a close friend. Some of you know she's going through treatment for brain cancer. She's a young mom. She's about a year older than our daughter. She lived with us for a little while. We're very close. I married her and her husband. But it's painful. 
And um, before she went there, she went and spent some time with our, our extended family, um, Carol's sisters, my brother and parents. And she wrote this about being at Jack, which is Carol's youngest sister. said, being at Jack's, watching her in action, she says she's like Gran incarnate. That's um, her, grand, her grandmother. Was exactly what I needed. Caring for others is in my bones. This is all connected. It's been so grounding to see that I just think of you and her. And I know that you've modeled exactly how to love people. There's some gratitude in that. There's some appreciation. And then it's what she said next that touched me. She said, I arrived here at a friend's mouth feeling real confident in that. That it wasn't just her mom and her grandmom that exhibited but there was something in her too. And that had been reinforced. And it strengthened ever more as we call it out, name it, and give thanks for it. Whether that's to God, whether that's to one another, we're called to live in a place of profound gratitude and appreciation. And it literally heals and saves and transforms us and those around us. We are not called to be the critical ones. We're called to be those who see and notice and give thanks and live, because of it, out of a place of tremendous abundance. So do you want to go on that journey? We need to remind ourselves, because we all slip back, we all lose sight. We all need to be refocused from time to time. That's why I keep inviting you into one or two intimate, close relationships where you're known and seen and, peop- and, and people speak into your life and celebrate and keep calling you to the journey. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your tremendous gift, the indescribable gift, as Paul calls it, of the Lord Jesus, of your very life, of your shed blood, and of the giving of your spirit. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you that you've changed our lives and you've given us hope and a future. Thank you that forever our destiny is changed because of you, the resurrected one, the one who is alive. And so we praise you and we give thanks to you. And like like the Samaritan leper, we want to bow in adoration towards you, to kiss your feet, to say how much we love you, to walk with you, to know you, and to fully receive the gift that we might share it with others. For your glory, we pray.